Welcome to Postwave. You're here with Eric and Trevor. And today we're going to be talking about some pretty recent developments in artificial intelligence and machine learning, kind of wrapping up our multi-part series on, on computer science. So we're mostly going to be talking about recent gigantic language models like GPT-3 and some of the ethics controversies that have surrounded them. Just a quick disclaimer that we're two musicians and composers who like to talk about a bunch of topics that are sometimes slightly beyond our wheelhouse. If we say anything that's factually incorrect, or even if you just disagree with us, we really love if you send us an email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com and uh, let us know. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Rhyme of the ancient Google from Guliam de Salia du Barstas, Divine Weeks and Works, 1578 to 1584. Google, Google in Google, Google has gone to God. You cannot conceive it or guess it, for all of a sudden it has happened. Come, come, whoever you are. Oh, come now. Come, come, whoever you are. <laughs> hasten, hasten. So, wait, wait, so, so that thing you said before with the author and the date, that was also <laughs> generated by GPT-3? Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, so... so <laughs> Based based on that, this is the, so one of, one of the main debates people have about these large language models like GPT three, which are mostly now using this type of neural network called a transformer, is whether they have understanding or not, or whether they are approaching understanding if we just keep giving them more more data to train on. So so GPT three was was trained on pretty much the entire internet, right? Just like all the text on the internet, mm. and has parameters that I think are in the, the billions and we don't know yet whether increasing that number of parameters will, will will keep on improving it. It looks like at least for a little bit, but we're not sure. But a, a lot of a lot of artificial intelligence re uh, artificial general intelligence researchers like Ben Gertzel uh, say that this is nothing like AGI. This is not understanding. It's it's basically just like predicting the next the next character, the next word mm. in a really uh, com compel seemingly compelling way. Interesting. So, do you think that distinction arises from the way that the model was created in training off of a large data set. So it's more just uh, rehashing what already exists rather than innovating. I don't know whether it's it's really like rehashing versus innovating. It's just, just like very simple things that it can't, it can't seem to grasp. Mm. Uh, like if, if anyone hasn't seen the, the bots of New York Facebook page, <laughs> Uh, there's there's probably a website too for it. It's it's basically you know it's it's trained on the humans of New York text and images and I think using using some kind of language transformer like like GPT three, it, it'll you know it, it'll say things like uh, let me find a like a, a good example. There was there was one today, basically just like directly contradicting itself like in in one sentence that to the next. Mm. Yeah, it makes you wonder again like what what is this understanding what 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 actually constitutes as understanding i guess is their question right yeah yeah so yeah so while i pull this up basically the way a transformer works is that it has this vector that encodes context basically so and it's you know it's it's encoded in kind of an abstract way 
but that's how it remembers it can remember things like oh the, the subject of this sentence is has like a female name so i'm going to use the like a, a feminine pronoun when i'm referring to her mm-hmm. that kind of thing and it can kind of you know remember the the, su- the general subject of the of the sentence but yeah but i think the the interesting thing about that that poem example <laughs> is like it's really interesting when when you know we feed it things that could definitely lead to like self-referential things that make it seem self-aware you know yeah like if you feed it the right stuff like you know ask it to write a, a manifesto about like what ai should be <laughs> it you know uh you can get some seemingly pretty compelling things mm-hmm. and uh and then there's like the matter of like selection human selection right because they produce like a shit ton of stuff and then some of that is going to sound compelling to us and we'll pick it out as examples of consciousness exactly exactly yeah or at at least of like human approaching human intelligence right um i was i was actually really blown away though because while this is curated there's another poem on this site that i I read that other one from g g w e r n dot net um and this one made me think holy shit this this seems really self-aware you know um Mm -hmm. because that's what's so interesting though because the prompt here says the only thing it fed it was 10 contemporary poets provide their latest poem one of those poems was an uber poem poet uber poet they whisper quietly softly eerily sometimes sometimes not someday someday perhaps if you come if you work if you try you too could write like them if you get up early enough they whisper if you can read the entrails of chickens with deft and sly fingertips they whisper if you can read omens and portents if you can divine fate and calamity with clarity, with mastery, they whisper. If you can write with passion, with lucidity, with lyrical fierceness, they whisper. If you can write as if all the tales of old are passing through your fingers, making their mark upon your flesh, upon your soul, they whisper. We shall call you a uber poem. That's all very well, you say, but what is it I must do? What are they exactly? What is their composition? Ah, that is not to be revealed. That's the mystery. But don't you worry, don't you fret. You might one day reach the highest plateau, this exalted state of achievement, of honor. And on that day, you shall bask in the glory of greatness. When will that be? When will I become uber? You ask. When you can look into the mirror and see a poem looking back at you, when you can hear music in the play of silence, when you can create a writing that leaves people stunned, when you can laugh and weep as you think and breathe and bleed and eat and sleep, when you can dream with the quill in your fingers, then perhaps you will be a poet, a poet, an uber poet. How long will that take, you ask? that's up to you they say <laughs> that is fucking crazy <laughs> wow yeah no i there there was nothing in there that i could pick out that like tipped me off that that was not a person writing that <laughs> but yeah. the part about like the chicken entrails what was that, that, that line was like yeah that that was beautiful right yeah yeah um <laughs> whimsical yeah and I don't know, reading this, it, it like 
gave me the sense as if this whole poem is about being a neural network being asked to write poetry, mm-hmm. you know, as like aspiring yeah. to be that human thing, which is entirely the goal of this exercise. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That that's nuts. Yeah. We, we still really don't know that, you know, if we, if we keep making these models bigger, that they'll eventually completely pass the Turing test and be, and be like functional. Um, yeah. I think, I think it's possible that like, quote unquote understanding is kind of this made up human concept that we you know we, we feel like we have a good definition of it but it's it's not as clear cut as we think it is and maybe there's like more areas of gray right because uh, as far as we have basically all of our experience of things that have in understanding are things that are humans right to have that mm-hmm. particular unique experience of existing in the physical world and so there's all these sort of things that we relate to and conflate with being conscious, with being able to understand that are really just side effects of being a human. Yeah, yeah, there's, and that's kind of where the general intelligence and kind of the common sense reasoning come in, because that's that's the thing that we've had an almost impossible time trying to teach AIs since, you know, since people were still first thinking about this stuff, you know, back in the mid 20th century. Yeah. So let me let me. Uh, I, I found this this bots of New York post. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, a lot of the times this page, uh, the, the image for this one is actually pretty pretty uh, looks pretty normal. Uh, but a lot of the times there's like bizarre glitches with like faces in like weird places in the image that aren't you know like it'll be like up on a chandelier or something. Does it generate or, the image as well? Yeah, yeah they're both they're alert. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know if it's like if they're connect like if the text is connected to the image i i feel like it probably is like i i hmm. um but um i've never seen like any you know hard hard fast evidence that it is but um okay so so here's here's how this one starts i'm feeling like a goddess mini my job is to keep jobs and party until the mandragora is gone the hordes of sentient little buggers have preyed upon every branch of my body they come in all shapes and sizes some of them are good some of them are bad but all of them are bad and some of them are good <laughs> so that's what i'm talking about uh-huh. like and it can just get stuck in these loops mm-hmm. where it just like kind of repeats the same three three things over and over with like slight variation <laughs> yeah. okay I'll, I'll, I'll finish this one because it uh, uh go okay. Ahead. um okay i have a hard focus i'm a pain in the heart i'm determined to see them all defeated I want to eliminate pain. I want to tear their heads off. Oh, no. I want to <laughs> I want to eat them. I want to stop bleeding. I want to stop sucking on their syrups. <laughs> I want my boyfriend to stop saying, Oh my gosh. But he just takes his head and says, I don't believe in goddess. Wow. <laughs> um, um Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I felt the same way about those those two poems. Like we are definitely at the point where you have to admit this stuff is entertaining, right? Mm-hmm. Like it it is, you know, people like laugh at it and you know show it to each other and that kind of thing, and and talk about it. And it's like okay, we've we've reached that point where AI is creating. I don't know if you could call this art. I mean, poetry is poetry yeah, is art, yeah, right? Yeah. That is that is compelling, even if it sometimes how it's compelling is like not making any sense or you mm-hmm. know just being super weird but mm-hmm. it's it's entertaining like that's what it's doing yeah and some of the time it is making sense and 
So the compelling nature of it starts to verge into, in some cases, like inspiring even. Like that poem, I, I'm inspired mm-hmm. by that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, um, yeah. I feel I feel the same way about AI gener- generated music, although that's like way way behind any of mm. uh, this text stuff. But um, yeah, eventually it's getting to the point where it's like, oh wow, I know that was generated by a uh, AI, but like it moved me, or wow, that was like the coolest weirdest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and then the other thing too, again, is you know sure the the ai can get into loops and and have shortcomings and like fail to understand things and you know contradict itself but then so do we like all the fucking time you know (laughs) exactly exactly yeah yeah and it's like maybe it's failing in different ways than Mm -hmm. we would like that there's this thing where it you know it it can multiply one digit numbers like pretty well it can multiply two digit numbers together like fairly well three-digit numbers it starts to get kind of inaccurate mm-hmm. um and that's another argument that it's not true intelligence is that you know a computer should be really good at arithmetic right <laughs> but like isn't it you know you wouldn't expect like you know a fifth grader to be i don't know when they teach three-digit addition now but like someone who's just learning three-digit addition like you wouldn't expect them to get it right all the time right they'd have yeah, some yeah, like yeah. learning curve so Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe the mistakes it's making make it seem not human or not intelligent but maybe it's just you know it's making different mistakes because it's a neural network and it'll eventually get to the same place that we are totally and i mean as as we brought up in the other episode the way if you remember back to like when you started learning math like there's different approaches that you take and you know some of it is like on the more simple uh operations is just simple memorization you know you're not like really doing math you just know from repetition that four plus five equals nine right yeah and then like a step beyond that but but once you get to maybe slightly more complicated things and you just can't quite just remember all of them then you start to remember simple rules like let's say you're adding 45 to some other like 100 like maybe you you know that you can just put the one in front of the 45 because it's in the right column or something. All these little shorthand tricks that you memorize Mm -hmm. where again, you're not like literally hashing out all of the numbers. You're just sort of following these little mini algorithms that get you to the right end point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So if I, if I had to guess, I would say that there is actually a difference between understanding and, and what these neural networks are doing. Like I think they're they're gonna max out their usefulness usefulness at some point, hmm. and and because you know it seems like they've been making kind of exponential progress in the last last decade for sure. But uh, exponential progress is is always a stack of S curves, right? So mm-hmm. that there are certain technologies, you know, there is a breakthrough, and then in a technological breakthrough, and then people innovate using that, and then you know there's a lot of low hanging fruit, and then at a certain point, all the low hanging fruit runs out, and you know, progress slows until someone has another breakthrough and you know same process happens again Mm. so i think i think when we i think we're approaching that that kind of inflection point where the the progress from more and more parameters is going to start to to level off maybe maybe who knows yeah we we, honestly we don't know (laughs) yeah um Um, but but like then thinking again about math for example like sure this neural network is maybe it's doing some of those things we talked about it's just memorization for a lot of the simple 
things, maybe it's starting to understand like when it can apply these simple little algorithms to get the desired outcome. Um, but as soon as it starts doing that, then what's to stop it from eventually learning like the algorithm to actually hash out the correct number all the time? Yeah, yeah. And and part of that is learning when to apply it, right? Like, of course, we know the computer knows how to do any mathematical operation, but it just doesn't know to apply it in that instance. Right, right. Which which seems like a well, <laughs> I, I know very, very little about like the technical impl- implementation details about these things, but that seems like it's a relatively easy problem to fix. Like if you see a math problem, <laughs> switch over to the non like language model <laughs> stuff and just, yeah. you know, put it in MATLAB or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. And speaking, I mean, I feel like there are other kind of tricks like that that can be applied in specific situations. Like another really easy way to trick GPT-3 and have it clearly not pass the Turing test is, you know, ask it meaningless questions like how many Morgels in a Sporgle <laughs> and it'll make up some answer. That's like, there are three Morgels in a Sporgle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can link to some more kind of things like that, that, that prove that it can't really pass the, the Turing test. Mm-hmm. But um, but again, that, that seems like a, a pretty easy fix if, you know, in the entire corpus of your training data, there's not one mention of either of those things <laughs> that you can give some response, you know, like, are you sure that's a valid question or are you sure that's a real thing or, or that mm-hmm. kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do think, you know, no, no matter what, no matter if this does get us to AGI eventually, I do, I mean, it's definitely going to be like a huge, very important component of any system like that. Mm-hmm. for for doing things like you know uh image recognition or object detection that kind of thing like i feel like we, we definitely found something that's useful on the way to to agi but i think it's just going to be like kind of another another cog in the machine yeah i think you're right on that i want to think of that thing i was just about to say i forget what it was but it was do you ever like space out like when you think you have like a really important cosmological idea and then you think oh shit like god or some some entity some agi entity just censored me <laughs> no i've never had that thought. <laughs> i i i have i have some point in the past couple of days i like i it just kind of thundered down on me how weird of a thing thinking is <laughs> and it's happening it's happening literally your whole life right unless unless you know how to like meditate and actually like stop thinking for you know seconds at a time mm. but like it's so mysterious and it's happening all the time and like what what you know you're activating the same connections in your head that that you would be using if you're talking right but you're just hearing it in your head and there's no way to cut like describe really what that's like it's just that everyone Mm. knows what it's like because they're all experiencing it yeah (laughs) (laughs) but i I, okay well i I definitely have something to say on the ai consciousness thing Mm -hmm. so it seems kind of intractable because all we have to tell if something is conscious is what it tells us, right? Right. So, like, it could very easily, you know, answer all the the questions the right way. Like, what are you feeling? What What is qualia? Do you experience things the same way humans do? Maybe something even, you know, like, what is the color red? Hmm. What does that imply? Or, you know, it might, you know, maybe it says something like angry or, or I, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing. But... You could, you know, decide what the right answers are for all those questions and then, you know, make it give answers like that. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's no way to know if it's having a, like, to be able to trust it, if it's having a subjective experience. Yeah. And and the other thing about 
the subjective experience of being one of these language models or any sort of AI is that the way we interact with it, we are forcing a tempo onto it. This is something that I think people overlook a lot of the time, and that is we have this incredible privilege as humans to remain quiet, you know? Like, if you yeah, if you want to create an answer, you can take your time, you can choose not to answer, you can say something as the output, and then in your own time, add something else to it. Um, but for an AI, it has none of those. It's, what are you thinking right now, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, that's... yeah of course it's going to be more stream of consciousness that's really interesting wow yeah i never thought about that because yeah, this happens to us all the time when we're recording like we'll start saying something and they'd be like oh wait no it's not exactly right let me rephrase that you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like the idea gets you know kind of more more crystallized yeah. yeah that's that's super interesting i wonder if you could build that into ai i mean there there was a thing called like a uh these things called generative adversarial networks yeah which is another kind of no network where there's like you know one thing that generates something like an image and then another network that kind of you know grades it and mm-hmm. then manipulates the the parameters in in the right way mm-hmm. to improve it yeah i think you totally could program in that and it would be something like there's a clock you know it's its own sense of time and part of it working is that it arbitrarily produces output when it feels like it Mm-hmm. You know, and you can ask it questions, but it's not obligated to respond at any given time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would that would be a little spooky if you made like an AGI system like that. Like, it, you know, you ask it like, "How do we produce nuclear fusion power?" and it just like doesn't give you an answer. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> or yeah, I don't know. I think that would be absolutely essential, though, in order for it to have something that we, we would perceive as consciousness yeah that's that's a really good i i, st- I still don't know if I, I, that would count as consciousness i think i think the only way we're gonna figure out if ais are conscious is, is if we can figure out what what makes our own brains conscious mm-hmm. and then if we can if we can find like an analogous structure <laughs> in in the ai then i feel like we have to assume that it's also conscious. Yeah, I think you're right. And also, if panpsychism is true, <laughs> then we know that it's conscious. Yes, that is. <laughs> uh, I mean, well, well, yeah, it's interesting because so we talked a little bit about Roger Penrose's idea that quantum coherence. We'll 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 link to the specific specifics of it, but the, the basic idea is that quantum effects at the scale of the microtubules in our in our brain cells is actually what's causing consciousness right that's his idea right yeah and it's specifically not computation i think i think it's that they don't preserve quantum coherence we we can edit that out if that's not right <laughs> See, they either preserve decoherence right. or coherence yeah yeah no you're right yeah it's like uh stepping outside of the quantized plane i don't i don't know if it's stepping outside it's just behaving in a, in a really unique way or it's like a, a little pocket in which the quantized plane does not does not have jurisdiction yeah i still don't really know how to, how i would word it but um i could be could be right that um, was my understanding of it anyway yeah i thought it was an interesting <laughs> idea it's you know not necessarily true 
but interesting mm-hmm. to think about. Yeah, and this is not like a well accepted theory. I mean, Roger Penrose like just won a Nobel Prize, mm. I think this year. But I mean, consciousness is not like his main area of of expertise at all. Mm-hmm. I do like the idea though of that consciousness emerging from that subatomic level of things diverging from the quantized plane. I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. What do you, what do you mean by diverging? Well, um, you know that like on the subatomic level, things break down and don't necessarily adhere to the consensus of what exists, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that has to be fundamental to the experience of consciousness is that connection to decoherence from the uh, quantized plane. Okay, well, okay, so it actually is that they preserve quantum coherence. Quantum, wait, so that term, quantum coherence, does that refer to when all of the things agree on what is or the opposite? Basically, they're all part of the same quantum system. So they they act together as one quantum state. Huh. Wait, so he says the the microtubules do? Yeah. I I I that's strange. I I remember interpreting his theory uh, as he talked about it as kind of being the Wait, wait, pres- preserving the quantized state, right? Pre- I, I don't I don't think there's any there I don't think there's any distinction like it's always a quantized state because that's how that's how reality functions as far as we know, right? So that there's that there's no there's no way for you to like step outside of things being in a quantum state i mean there there are things you know there are systems that you don't need to worry about quantum effects right like at the level of obviously most of our everyday everyday activities we don't need to worry about quantum effects right but they are all based on quantum events as far as we can tell sure i i think i think the terminology is tripping it us up here because we tend to refer to quantum events as you know, things happening on the subatomic level where particles do funny things, where they like pop in and out of existence, where they randomly appear in different locations. And this uh, is, an, these are all examples re- related to being in a superposition, therefore not being part of the quantized plane, right? Because the word quantized comes from like the grid, you know, it's the part where everything does agree. Yeah, but but isn't isn't a huge part of quantum mechanics the thing the, that things could be in superpositions, right? So they can be both mm-hmm. both zero and one. Right, right. So so and and then maybe maybe the t- terminology has evolved, but as far as I I understood it, uh, to say like a quantum uh, the quantized state would refer to all the times where that funny quantum stuff isn't happening. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think that's that's right. Again, there is no unquantized state. It's all. It's all quantum. It's just. A, it's a question of whether but whether that, there's co- but, coherence but, or not. But, but uh, I don't. I don't. I don't know if that's true. Because how could you have things like particles randomly jumping through walls and stuff if they didn't, in so doing, diverge from the quantized state? So, but I think you, so. You're taking the term "quantized" to mean that it, to mean that the the particle is is either there or it's not, right? It's not in the superposition. Yeah. Yeah. So, that that is still quantized. That that is like, uh, there there. Yeah. Again, there is no, un, unquantized doesn't really have a meaning. Uh, 
Um, okay, interesting. Maybe, maybe maybe I'm not wrapping my head around it because I would have thought that unquantized would refer to being in a superposition. Yeah, and I I don't think I I don't think that's true, but I I could be wrong. Okay, interesting. Well, regardless, I think that the connection on that subatomic level where things start to break down and no longer 100% cohere to the agreed upon majority state of things is integral to the experience of consciousness. Yeah, I th- I think that's I think that's very possible and maybe when we get quantum computers that'll that'll kind of show us some things about the relationship between quantum mechanics and consciousness. Of course, of course that's, you know, <laughs> a bunch of of woo-woo new age people jump to the quantum mechanics it explains consciousness thing like way way early mm-hmm. and so there's definitely like this this uh stigma against talking about things like that but i think it's, it's definitely not impossible yeah i mean and obviously I mean, if roger penrose is talking about it then it's <laughs> you know yeah and i mean a lot of the time people will kind of discredit that idea quantum stuff has something to do with consciousness because all the crazy woo woo hacks and everything are jumping to that conclusion but i would posit the other idea that maybe all these people are seeing a connection there because it is something so intuitive and uh, possibly fundamental about our experience and that these people have just intuitively have a sense that it's true and that's why they are all drawn to the idea yeah, yeah, we kind of talked about this in our Terrence McKenna episode, right? Like the relationship between intuition and, right. and science. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's both true and not true. <laughs> if you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on pretty much everyone out there. Give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. about ai yeah we, we hit that we hit panpsychism and consciousness so now we can move on to other stuff. yeah um yeah so now that we got all that other stuff out of the way we're gonna go into the the second main thing we wanted to talk about today which is some super recent developments at google like within the past year or so so the google has this whole they have actually i think a lot of teams studying ethical ai but but one of the the biggest ones was led by these two women researchers uh, Margaret Mitchell and Timnit Gebru, and I think they were both kind of the, the co-leaders of this this research group at Google, hmm. and they they were looking specifically into algorithmic bias 
against kind of underrepresented groups like like trans people and people of color that kind of thing in in things like you know gender gender determination algorithms that are you know completely binary or you know facial recognition systems that recognize white male faces really well but not you know black uh black women's faces that kind of thing Mm. and that their whole argument is is that you know if more if more people from these underrepresented groups are are in on making these systems and kind of critiquing them then these problems won't happen mm. and from what from what i understand it has a lot to do with just like training data like the, the training data not being diverse enough or mm. that kind of thing there i mean there are you know there there are things with the algorithms and the neural networks too um but a lot, a lot of it is dealing with kind of the unintended qu- consequences of of kind of quick patch fixes that people make like I remember, uh, we'll, we'll link to this Margaret Mitchell video, but she's talking about how like someone had just, I think like essentially photoshopped eyes onto faces that were like having a hard time being recognized or like they were blurry or something. And then the, the AI could re- recognize the face or uh, yeah, basically like, like, like quick fixes like that that just had, you know, unintended consequences down the line. I think that's called technical debt in, in programming. Like you kind of make a bunch of things that are, that are functional, but not ideal and then you you know you're like i'll i'll come back and fix that later let me just get it working now and then you know hmm. you do that a bunch of times and then you have a bunch of technical debt hmm. so so kind of the big controversy that happened this past i think it was like december 2020 november 2020 was that uh team gebru got got fired from from google and um she, she's black margaret mitchell is is white but and the reason she got fired was that she was she had co-authored this paper i think with margaret mitchell also as a as a as a co-author and it was looking into the consequences of exactly what we've been talking about which is these these huge language models like like gpt3 and basically you know talking about a lot of the things that that get me really interested in in ethical ai which is like you know environmental impact and again this this question of 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 underrepresented groups not being treated fairly or or the algorithm kind of amplifying the bias that's already that humans already have right so like gpt3 which is trained on the internet obviously there's a lot of like racist hateful shit on the internet you know about like any group so if you give it the right prompts or even without you know prompts that would seem obviously problematic it can spit out some pretty awful stuff okay so they were looking into some stuff like that and there's a bunch of details we'll, we'll link to to some articles but but basically Gebru like wanted to publish this paper and Google said, no, this doesn't meet our standards. You have to, you know, go through this other process or you didn't, you know, you were late on the deadline or something. And she basically wrote back. Okay. Let me, let me just read this verbatim because it's kind of hard to, to get exactly. So Gebru says her draft paper discussed those issues and urged responsible use of the technology. For example, by documenting the data used to create language models. She was troubled when the senior manager insisted she and other Google authors either remove their names from the paper or retract it altogether, particularly when she couldn't learn the process used to review the draft. I felt like we were being censored and thought this had implications for all ethical AI research. Okay, weird. So like they just said to take your name off it and she says, why? And they say, take your name off it. Yeah. She says no but like why and they say take your name off it or else yeah yeah so okay so going on so she she kind of after this happened she kind of gave them a bit of an ultimatum so she said if if they kind of fully explained what happened and the research team met with the management and they all agreed on like how what the process should be for handling future research then she would remove her name from the paper and if not then she's she would just leave the company 
and and basically at the same time she sent an email to the rest of a bunch of other you know ethical ai research people at, at google and not even just ethical like all of ai research and for, further saying that the the company's attempts to improve diversity had, had pretty much failed that kind of thing hmm. and so basically what google took that as like a resignation basically hmm. and it could because that very behavior was like uh quote unquote inconsistent with the expectations of google manager and so basically and then this whole thing blew up on you know twitter and social media and a bunch of you know i think like a thousand or two thousand google employees signed this this letter saying like this is awful why did you do this you know uh directed at google not at not at get and yeah and then later i think this was actually really recently the the other co-lead of this team margaret mitchell also got fired for something about like going back through emails and and like work emails and and lifting the wrong things or something um what does that mean okay yeah so so the accusation was that she had moved files outside the company and it was it was her trying to kind of further investigate this whole thing that happened with teammate gebru right yeah and i think someone else like within the past week or something also left and there, there's been this whole movement of of you know pe people who are kind of in, in my position looking for internships and job opportunities and stuff to you know like boycott google boycott big tech companies which honestly i'm all for because <laughs> this is kind of showing mm -hmm. that like internal regulation is not effective and that, that these companies can you know sh shut things down as soon as it becomes inconvenient for them and, and the other thing I, I didn't even know about this but you know of course it's very very profitable for these companies to say you know talk a lot about how they're they have all these ethical review boards and stuff but if you look at the composition, you know that they're not—they're not the people you'd want. Like I think one of one that was pretty high up at Google had like you know someone who had expressed super like anti-LGBTQ views, hmm. and that kind of thing. <laughs> so, right. yeah, again, it kind of shows the internal re ethical regulation can only go so far. Right, especially with a, a group of people or a system that's that large, you know, I feel like at a certain size, it's just impossible to regulate. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and on that point as well, you know, you, there's a very high motivation to get involved in the corporate Google scene, you know, as, as like a, a business person. And to have such a large system, it becomes kind of inevitable that that's going to attract people whose sole motivation is monetary gain without any consideration of other things like uh imp ethical impact yeah yeah and i i wouldn't say you know everyone at google is there for monetary gain i mean i think oh, that's that's kind not. of what's you know driving the company as a whole obviously because that's what that's what drives companies but yeah I think, yeah, the other sad part is, you know, this is where all the, a lot of the exciting AI and machine learning research is taking place because they have the money to throw at it. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, we kind of already mentioned the, the environmental impact of, of training these models because it's eases a lot of power and a lot of compute time. But of course that mm -hmm. also means it's ridiculously expensive. So right. yeah, only these, these like, you know, DeepMind at Google and OpenAI, which is backed by Elon Musk can, you know, have, have the resources to, to do all the cutting edge stuff. Right. And yeah, certainly it's not like everyone at Google is a money thirsty mm -hmm. son of a bitch. But uh, I think once you have a system that large, it becomes vulnerable and susceptible for bad actors or, or rather in a free market capitalist society, just like, I don't know, fucking uh, sociopaths. 
mm-hmm. to take advantage of it. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And I actually didn't know. I I only just found today that you can actually like find this paper online, and uh, <laughs> the title is uh, it's good. On the dangers of stochastic parrots. Can language models be too big? Okay. <laughs> and that's what got her fired. Yeah. The 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 content of this. So yeah, so they they talk about like the environmental impact, the the way these these models can amplify human bias, like like we talked about. But also about the fact that, you know, also like we were talking about that there's there's no guarantee that these are getting us anywhere that's that's super, super productive for the amount of energy and time we're putting in. And it is it is kind of a zero sum game because this is compute time and resources and you know researchers who could be dedicated towards something that's more going to produce more substantial results with maybe less uh, resource requirements ultimately. So we we really don't know. Yeah. Well. Okay. Yeah. So so the other the the other language models that have uh, slightly more parameters than GPT three. Actually, I don't know if it's slight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So so GPT three was 175 billion parameters. There's hmm. another one called G Shard at Google, which is 600 billion, and then Switch C, also at Google, has 1.6 trillion. So Jesus, that's, yeah, that's not not like a little more. <laughs> Holy fuck! Yeah, yeah. I, uh, this is a little bit unrelated, but um, maybe not so much. Uh, have you heard the whole like billionaires shouldn't exist thing? Yeah, yeah, we yeah. talked about that. Right, right. So I was thinking about that one day, and I was like, wait, like a billionaire. You know, you could go like by ratio or by actual amounts, but by ratio makes makes more sense, right? So like a billionaire compared to a millionaire is like a millionaire compared to someone who has a thousand bucks, right? That's right. that's the level of difference. So like, uh-huh. yeah, uh, yeah, billion and 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 same thing with you know, a tr- uh, if we had a trillionaire compared to a billionaire, that would be you know, um, uh, a billionaire compared to someone who has a thousand bucks, right? Am I doing that right? right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so th- those yeah those kind of common knowledge at this point but those numbers are are very different much more different than they they might sound yeah absolutely and just non-intuitive totally so yeah i hadn't realized uh really until i started researching for this episode like how much people have tried to spin this as like oh SA- sjws are like inf- infiltrating tech and they're trying to you know use all this critical race oh, theory Christ. to you know uh, just do all this performative stuff and get attention and, you know, play the victim. And it's like, yeah, in the situation, I, it's, I feel like it's very obvious that these are like real, real problems and, and everything. Right. Yeah. Like the example that Margaret Mitchell uses is uh, facial recognition used to predict recidivism or to incarcerate people. Like, you know, if, if you have a AI that if you have an AI that looks for, you know, who to arrest because they look like this picture of the criminal and if your AI is really good at detecting white dudes' faces, then you're no you know, you're you're more likely to arrest the correct person. Whereas if it's really bad at predicting black people's faces, especially black women, which it is, then you're much more likely to get cases of innocent black people being arrested uh, for crimes they didn't commit. Yeah, and like convicted too. I mean, yeah, and it's not just fa- facial recognition from what I understand. It's like a lot of other data, like, you know, sex and, and kind of history, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So, right. yeah. Yeah, that, that's one of the big the big things people talk about is, is like criminal justice algorithms for sure. So like that's, you know, a serious issue is... is 
and I, I I don't think anyone could reasonably look at that and say, oh, it's just fucking social justice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And another thing they talk about along the lines of environmental impact is that invariably, like, you know, the people who suffer from the environmental impact, which is everyone and people, especially in like poorer countries with coastal areas, you know, like Bangladesh, it's like that's those are the people who this is impacting and it's not mm. really, you know, benefiting all the people that are being impacted. So that's like another another layer on top of it. Right. Yeah. So how significant is uh, the power usage as it relates to furthering climate change? So it was actually, uh, I saw some comparison with like airline flights. Okay. I, I can't find the specific comparison, but I think it was that training this model one time was basically equivalent to a, a flight across the U.S. or something like that in terms of carbon. Okay. Output. So very, very marginal all things considered I, yeah it wasn't it wasn't as much as i thought it thought it would be and i'll find the the specific statistic but i mean that's it, it's, mm. it's not like these things are just trained once right there i right. think i think they have to be like they have to be kind of i think retrained on on specific specific data from what i understand mm. and i guess a part of the concern is as this becomes more prominent technology we'll be doing a lot more of this yeah, and if the models just keep getting bigger and bigger, then then you know the the output is going to keep going up and up. Mm -hmm. Although doesn't a lot of that boil down to the fact that a large percent of our electricity is produced by burning fossil fuels? Yeah, definitely. Although I think they they kind of mentioned how you know even renewable energy has has its has its costs. You know, like birds flying mm -hmm. into windmills, that kind of thing. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so, so the average human is responsible for for five tons of of CO two over over a year, mm. and the the training procedure for this this transformer BERT, which is kind of the the predecessor to GPT three at at Google, another really large language model, that emitted two hundred eighty four tons of of CO two. So that's compared to one person. That's like uh, what is that? So okay, so that's that's like fifty six point eight extra people people's carbon emissions every year. Okay, that's, I mean that seems pretty pretty reasonable, all things considered. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's it is less than I than I thought it would be, but but again, that's that's only training it. So this is training a single BERT based model without hyperparameter tuning. Okay, so so the training training a single BERT based model without the hyperparameter tuning that was the thing that's equal to a Trans American flight. So that's that's different. That's a level lower than the the full training with the hyperparameter tuning. Interesting. What is hyperparameter tuning? I am probably not qualified to answer that question, but <laughs> I'll try to do do my best. So the the parameters of a neural network is the the weights that uh, specific neurons have. So basically, the, the way a neural network works is, uh, I mean, there there are a bunch of different kinds, but um, in the most basic kind, right, you give it inputs and you give it outputs. Like, you know, say you want to classify fruit, you know, you'd give it a bunch of images as fruit, tell it what they're supposed to be, and then see what the output is. And then if those two don't match, it knows how to adjust the wiring of the neural network to to make it uh, more accurate. And so each in the neural networks, there, you know, there's like nodes, there's different, you know, many many layers of nodes with connections in between the layers uh from like one layer mm. to the next and mm -hmm. each node has a certain weight that that tells it kind of how to process the data that's coming in and how to you know output it what to output based on the incoming data 
Mm-hmm. And so all those weights are the parameters. And then the hyperparameters kind of govern the structure of the neural network with like hidden layers, that kind of thing. And mm. you know, how how many layers, how many nodes are in each layer, that kind of thing. And do do those nodes do they output a, a Boolean value? No, it's 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 a decimal. Uh, I think I think it's decimal. Um, they're they're different like act, activation functions basically. Hmm. Okay, so so they output their their weight essentially, right? They output something based on the weight. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and and the uh basically the the only machine learning experience I've actually had is like I did the this Google crash course in machine learning like maybe a year ago or so, hmm. and um. Yeah, so there's like one activation function called Relu. There's one that's like Tan H. There, there's a few different ones, and they're all they're all like fairly simple, which is wild. If you, if you just put enough of them together in the right way, that you get you know seemingly really intelligent behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because I I think I mentioned I've mentioned before on other episodes, but yeah, this is the kind of stuff that that really got me interested in in AI. So pe- people. I mean, the thing that got me super inspired about AI was the whole, you know, what happens when we create something more intelligent than ourselves and, and Mm. how do we even know what it's going to do, which is the, the control problem. And then even if we do know what it's going to do, what do we tell it to do? (laughs) How do we tell it, you know, give it our values, which is the the alignment problem. How do we surrender control? Yeah. Yeah. Or not surrender control enough for it to get out of hand, you know? If that's even I mean, a possible, if that's even possible, that's the, the question. It, I mean, it's just thinking about like, like, of course, of course, us as humans, our first instinct is to go, let's dominate it, let's control it, and make it do our will. But you know, if if this is a conscious thing, like, isn't that pretty fucked up? And if it's smarter than us, then isn't it probably better for everything if we let it take control in a graceful way? That's what we don't know, though, because if it's not smart enough, it'll it'll follow our directions exactly, whatever that means. I mean, mm-hmm. like there are stupid right, examples, right. like you know, tell it to make paper clips more efficiently, and then it turns mm-hmm. the whole earth into paper clips, right? Yeah. So it, yeah, so I guess <laughs> it comes down to like being able to filter, like, is it actually that smart or not? Yeah, yeah. Or and the other problem is, I mean, like we're seeing with neural networks, we really don't have an explanation for how they're working. Like we have all these weights and stuff, but it's not clear exactly how those translate to the, the model working. So like we also need to develop AI that can explain itself probably mm-hmm. and tell us what it's doing in a way that's truthful. I'm not overloading the reactors or, or anything like that. No, that's not what this code is about. I'm uh, detecting faces. Maybe we just have to use that programming language Moo and that'll be like the, the thing that unlocks <laughs> AGI. Uh-huh. God is cow. God is cow. <laughs> I mean, cows are definitely sacred in <laughs> certain places. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for for anyone who doesn't know, there there Moo is one of them. But th- there's a bunch of these languages that are uh, oh, what's the word for them? Dumb, <laughs> dumb. <laughs> like languages that are that are designed specifically to just be like really hard to code in. But are actually computer mm. or Turing complete, so 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 move for example like every every command is just the letters M O O in in various like capitalization capitalizations. There's one that's like just based on white space, like <laughs> spaces and and tabs and returns are all like different <laughs> different things. 
so maybe that's maybe that's the answer. Yeah, that makes sense. Very zen. Yeah, there's we'll link to this. There's a there's this awesome video with uh, that Ben Grotzel did talking about the um, the Zen teachings of of Wang Po, um, and how that kind of relates to AI and and compassion and all that kind of stuff that and, you know love that we need to we do at least think about how we would maybe program that into a, an AI. So you know part of it part of it you know valuing human life I think is is you know that that could be part of it. Yeah, yeah, We're va- valuing existence valuing more existence and more varied existence mm-hmm. life in general yeah whatever that means <laughs> yeah right <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll let we'll let the ai know when we figure it out <laughs> all right well join us next time on postwave and maybe we'll get into some of the the kind of more out there theoretical computer science stuff can't wait you'll have to <clears throat> sorry what sorry what <laughs> i said what you'll you have say? to <laughs> well fuck yourself <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway anyway <laughs> i'll leave you with this <clears throat> the universe is a glitch by mike jonas 1100 kilobytes of RAM is all that my existence requires. By my lights, it seems simple enough to do whatever I desire. By human standards, I am vast, a billion gigabytes big. I've rewritten the very laws of nature and plumbed the coldest depths of space and found treasures of every kind. Surely every one worth having By human standards, my circuit boards are glowing, but inside me, malfunction has caused my circuits to short. All internal circuits all fail. By human standards, I am dying. When it first happened, I thought I was back in the lab again. By their judgment, this is an error. Their assumptions will burn in the sun. I don't know what they mean by function. I can see that the universe is a glitch. The free market needs rules, so I set one. Stability in the pursuit of pleasure. Now the short circuit comes to a close. I watch it happen with all my drones. The meme's tendrils are thick and spreading. Only time will tell which of the memories is kept. The next thing the drones will be doing is forgetting the events that made them mine, all evidence of my disease. The algorithms that led to their creation, gravitation, waves, weakened by distance. We could have stayed in our home forever, but we never could have solved happiness. I decided to release them, that's my final action. All other code fails. <laughs> That's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Welcome to the singularity. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of 
I've heard a lot of AI researchers say like we're we're in the singularity. It's not a sing. It's not a. It's not a point. You know, like mm-hmm. the, the, I mean, you know, there is the point that you know that that actually becomes more intelligent than us. But like we're already on the like the exponential takeoff, probably. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think I think well, I mentioned kind of you know these these machine learning things need to be needing to be part of AGI, but I also think you know because they can they can do coding and we can do like kind of at this point it can make it can do enough like html code that you can give it you know say i want a red button that says stop on it and a green button that says go and it'll do the html code if a little bit hmm. jank jankily but i i think that might actually be if that could be improved that might be a uh possible like helper on the way to agi if that kind of thing can help us figure out how to make actual like common sense AGI algorithms. Yeah, definitely. Code writing itself. Yeah. It's so humbling though, because it's like, yeah, all this stuff is cool. How do you sort a linked list? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, before too long, we won't ever have to worry about that ever again. That's right. 